I'm Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. Bob Shrum is a legendary figure on the American political scene and now a professor of practical politics at the University of Southern California. He's worked as a strategist and speechwriter to figures including John Kerry, Al Gore, Joe Lieberman, Joe Biden, and even back to George McGovern and Ted Kennedy. We're now just days away from the midterm elections. There's been much talk about the prospect of a blue wave. And what do you think of the chances of that happening? And have they gone up or down in the last few weeks? I think they've gone up in the last few weeks. The president's approval rating in the Gallup poll has gone down four points in just a few days. And I think people are settling in on the idea that they want to check on the president. But I would say one thing in our USC Dornsife LA Times tracking poll, there hasn't been much change. I mean, it, you know, it was 13 a week ago. It's 17 this week. It was 14 the week before that. And the press keeps looking for inflection points. And basically, I think people made up their minds some time ago about how they were going to vote in these House races. As for what happened last week, uh, both the, the pipe bombs and, the sh and that horrible shooting in the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, I don't know if that will have an impact. But I do believe that people are sitting at home worried about the condition of the country. Normally, if, with this kind of economy, people would say the country was on the right track. Instead, they're saying it's on the wrong track. And I think that's because of these other non-economic events. And because the president, you know, they have a, the president has a strategy, which is to go to red areas in red states, places that voted for him, and hold these rallies. Well, someone has to send him a note, he should know this already because of The Apprentice, telling them that there's such a thing as television. And you can't just go to a red area in a red state. You're going to be broadcast all across the country. And at this point, and I could be wrong, I'm wondering whether or not his campaigning might be hurting Republicans rather than helping them. So if the Democrats do well in these elections, is there a chance the party could draw the wrong conclusions and assume the 2020 presidential election is already in the bag? Uh, I don't think after 2016 that there is the slightest chance that Democrats will ever again assume that a presidential election is in the bag, at least those who were alive in 2016. <laughs> I mean, I, I was on a, a show here uh, on Showtime called The Circus with Mike Murphy, who's my co-director co here at the Center for the Political Future, a Republican strategist for a long time, friend of mine, campaigned against each other, but we like each other. And... I said, and he concurred, that no way, no how, in no universe, not this one or an alternative one, could Donald Trump be president of the United States. I don't think people are ever going to get that complacent again. <laughs> one thing I've consistently found in my research is that uh, most Trump voters still seem firmly behind the president, even if they don't always like the way his, uh, he does his tweets and other antics. Do you see them ever turning away from him and looking elsewhere? Or are the Democrats going to have to mobilize a whole new set of voters to beat him next time round? Well, first you have to understand that he drew to an inside straight. Because of the way the Electoral College works here, Hillary Clinton could win by three million popular votes and could lose the presidency. And if you change 38,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, she's president of the United States. 
one challenge I think for him going into 2020, and I don't know if he realizes this, is it's very hard to duplicate that again. And whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2020 is certainly not going to take those states for granted. Uh, to a large extent, uh, I think Hillary Clinton, for example, took Wisconsin for granted. There was basically no advertising. The candidate never appeared there. Yes, Democrats had won it in every election since 1988, but that doesn't mean that you can take it for granted. I mean, there was a county in Wisconsin called Pepin County. Now, I have no idea why there's a county in that state named after Charlemagne's father, but it's up in the corner of the state. It's voted Democratic in every presidential election since 1972, uh, and almost voted for McGovern over Nixon in 1972, and Donald Trump carried it by double digits. So I don't think that there can be an assumption that Democrats will be complacent about this in 2020, and I assume that there will be some people around the president who will say, look, we've got to worry about these places too. I mean, if, if you look at Wisconsin right now, there's a reasonable chance Democrats will win the governorship, will hold the Senate seat, and will pick up a lot of state legislative seats. If I were sitting in the White House, I would worry about the implications of that. Our recent focus groups have also found Democrats quite torn between wanting to go in a more liberal, progressive direction and wondering whether that's the right way to approach the next general election. What's your perspective on that debate? Well, I think there are two false debates inside the Democratic Party and about the Democratic Party. One is whether or not the party should stand for economic justice or social justice. I think it should stand for both. I think it's a seamless garment, and if Democrats can't stand up for both of those, then why in the world do they exist? That's why the same Democratic Party that in the 1960s was promoting a tax cut to get the economy moving again, to use JFK's phrase, was also the party that put forth a civil rights bill, a historic civil rights bill, that brought fundamental change in terms of abolishing segregation, in, in the, especially in the South. So that's the first false argument. The second false argument, and I'm not saying this won't play out in the primaries, is people standing around and saying, you're not progressive enough. Uh, I know very few Democratic public officials in the Senate or in Congress that I would not say are progressive. There are degrees of their, com of their commitment to progressive ideals, but they're progressive. My own sense, and I haven't been in your focus groups, I would love to have been there. My own sense is that Democrats are going to be pretty pragmatic in 2020, that they're going to ask a fundamental question. And that fun they always do, by the way. And that fundamental question is going to be, who has the best chance to beat Trump? And I think that's where the party will ultimately settle in terms of a nominee. But when you're looking at 20, 22, 23 people who want to run for president, you're looking at a process that could be quite unique. I mean, the Republicans had to divide their debates into two parts last time. They had the big people's debate, and then they had the kids' table. Uh, that could happen with Democrats, too. Uh, the other thing that, that, that will be interesting is to see whether or not one candidate can win both Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, that's only happened twice. When it happens, the process tends to collapse toward that candidate. That may change this year. South Carolina has very heavy African-American uh, constituency. You're going to have major African-American candidates, so even if they don't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, they can go on. California has moved up so that it comes very shortly after that. 
uh, and someone like Kamala Harris, who's the senator here, would have a natural advantage in this state. But it's possible that everybody's going to run around saying, oh, my God, there are so many candidates. This process is going to take so long. It's going to be so expensive. It's so draining. It's possible, just barely possible, that it could get over pretty fast. Now, there also seems to be a divide between those who think Hillary Clinton lost essentially because she had too much baggage and, as we have discussed uh, uh, so far, didn't campaign enough in Wisconsin, in which case one more heave will be enough next time around and those who think the party needs to look to more fundamental reasons. What's your view? Uh, Hillary Clinton would have won with a different campaign. Uh, She probably would have won with a different vice presidential uh, candidate. You know, if you look back at history, uh, Franklin Roosevelt did not pick John Nance Garner as his vice president, the Speaker of the House, because he liked him. He picked him because he had to do it to win the nomination. And uh, JFK did not pick Lyndon Johnson because he especially liked him. He kind of liked him, but because it was a way to hold enough of the South to win the presidency. And Ronald Reagan did not like George H.W. Bush and did not want to pick him, but it was the most practical pick to reassure voters that Reagan was not too radical or too conservative. I think Hillary Clinton made a very complacent pick. Uh, uh, Tim Kaine's a great guy. She really likes him. Uh, She felt very comfortable with him, with the idea of working with him. But I think, for example, and I doubt this ever crossed her mind, that it might have if she thought she she had a chance of losing. I think, for example, if she had picked Bernie Sanders, look at the three states we're talking about, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. She won Pennsylvania. She lost Michigan. She lost Wisconsin to him in the primaries. She might very well have won. So I think that there were a a lot of things that went wrong in that campaign, not polling in the the battleground states and in in those three states and some others in the last several weeks, relying on data analytics instead of actually asking people how they were going to vote. I think that was a mistake. But most fundamentally, Donald Trump won the message war. You can have all the bells and whistles in the world. You can have all the data analytics in the world. You can have all the targeting and organization in the world. If you lose the message war, you're likely to lose the election. And Trump had a very simple message. Make America great again. We're not great now. And the problem is immigration, and I'm going to stop the immigrants. And the problem is foreign trade, and I'm going to take care of that too. And everybody knew it. I, you know, Hillary Clinton's slogan, Stronger Together, was not about her. It was actually a hidden negative critique or a coded negative critique of him. So she didn't have a real economic message that got conveyed to voters. Some of her defenders will tell you, well, if you look on her website, she had a, a, a whole program about what to do with these areas that have been hollowed out by globalization and by changes in, in, in the modern world in terms of manufacturing and who looks on the website? I mean, some people, but you got to go out there and you got to advertise it. And finally, I'd say, and I think she would have been a very good president in the middle of all this, by the way, that I'm being critical. Finally, I think she never established an empathetic bond with these voters. You know, her husband certainly did. And Barack Obama did. She lost places like Macomb County, Michigan, that brought right outside Detroit, that Barack Obama carried. And I think it's very important for voters to believe that you really genuinely care about them and that you understand what they're going through. And it isn't, by the way, about the money. Uh, the fact is that Franklin Roosevelt and the Kennedys had 
tremendous capacity to connect with voters like that, and they believe that the that FDR and JFK, uh, RFK, Teddy Kennedy cared about them, and so they responded to that. It's a little hard to say how you could how you could sort of re-engineer yourself so that you connect. I mean, it's either you do or you don't. And I think that was always a problem for her. Something else that stands out among Democrats is their attitude to people who voted for Trump. While some understand the desire for change, plenty of them seem to look down on Trump supporters with echoes of Hillary's basket of deplorables remark. Do you think the Democratic Party has the appetite to reach out to people who they think have let the country down? Uh, yes, I think that there's an absolute determination to reach out to those people, the people in Macomb County, the, the, the Obama-Trump voters. Uh, uh, I think people are... Det- that, that's, that's one of the reasons I think that Joe Biden is a genuinely viable candidate. In fact, he's the front runner right now for the Democratic nomination if he chooses to run because he talks to those folks. They get him, he gets them. In fact, in 2008, I think he played a key role for Obama in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, so I, whoever emerges in the Democratic primary uh, is going to try very, very hard to reach out to those people. Now, all that said, I, I will say that it was, it, was not a, it was not a good idea to call Trump supporters baskets of deplorables. That, that, that was an unfortunate phrase. There some of them are people who are just completely flummoxed by what's happened to their world. They can't move because their houses aren't worth much anymore. Uh, industries have moved out of their towns. Uh, places are hollowed out. I mean, you have some of this in, in, in the north of England. And, and I think they decided they were going to take a chance on Trump. And that's one part of the Trump constituency. I think there is another and I don't think it's the majority of Trump supporters, but I think there is another part of the Trump constituency that is driven by darker impulses, by their fears about America becoming a majority non-white country, which we are, by their belief that somehow or other this was a lot better place in the 1950s, which it wasn't for millions and millions of Americans, Uh, and by their fear of the other, whether the other is a Muslim or... Uh, someone coming from Mexico or Honduras. I, I, I think those folks are going to stay with Trump. I don't think Democrats are ever going to reach them. And I don't think Democrats would ever say the kinds of things you have to say to reach them. Um, from an outsider's point of view, it seems there has been something of a role reversal in American politics, with the Democrats finding it harder to command their traditional role of champion of the little guy or the ordinary working person. Do you think that's actually the case? And how do you think that's come about? Well, Obama actually did did very well in 2008 and 2012 in conveying the idea that he would fight for the little guy. 2012, one of the critical things I think he had, uh, arguments he had to make, was that he had stepped in to save General Motors. And that really mattered in those Midwestern states. The 2016 campaign, for, for the Clinton campaign in 2016, I think focused so much on social justice and so little on economic justice in terms of what it communicated to people that those folks just weren't reached. So I, 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 don't, I don't have the sense that Democrats can't fight for the little guy. In fact, as I said at the beginning of this, 
if they don't fight for the little guy, if they don't fight for economic justice, and if they also don't fight for social justice, for treating women and LGBT people and minorities with fairness and decency, then they don't, the party doesn't have much of a reason for being. For a long time, there's been a saying in politics that demography is destiny. And while there must be something in it, this was supposed to be the reason Trump couldn't win. How far do you think that theory is right? Uh, the theory is right. Uh, what happened was that, as with every theory, there are exceptions. And 2016 was a big exception for some of the reasons that I've talked about. Demography was almost destiny, despite the problems in the Clinton campaign. And by the way, she would have won despite all those problems had it not been for James Comey and the reopening of the email investigation just you know a week, 10 days before the election. So, But if you look down the road and you look at the changing composition of the electorate, I have Republican friends, people who have been Republican strategists, who are very worried about where the Republican Party goes uh, long term. If it if the, if the Republicans can't get African-American votes, and that seems very implausible at this point, and if they can't, if they let Latino votes slip away, if they let that whole Hispanic constituency slip away the way uh, African-Americans slipped away in, in, in the 1960s, uh, and if they continue to alienate college-educated white women and suburban women, then they'll be in a demographic cul-de-sac. So I think the theory is right. It just didn't apply in 2016. You spent some time in the UK working with Gordon Brown when he was prime minister. How would you say working in British politics differs from working on campaigns over here? Well, I, I, I actually worked for the Labour Party from uh, early 1989 in, in the 92 election, a little in 97, not a lot, actually, uh, 2001, 2005. I, I think British politics is much more influenced uh, by the print media uh, and, and to the conservatives' benefit most of the time uh, than uh, the influence print media has here. Uh, that may change in Britain, I think, with the, the rise of digital, the capacity of people to set up their own news centers in whatever you want to call it, that may change. Uh, the, other, well, the other big difference, obviously, is there's no television advertising. There are party political broadcasts, which uh, I remember, I forget how long they were supposed to be. I don't know whether it was four minutes or five minutes or something. And I started saying, let's do two minutes. And they'd say, why would we give up three minutes or four, a couple extra minutes? And I'd say, because people might actually watch it if it's two minutes long. If it's five minutes long, they might not watch it. Uh, so that's a big change. So you have all these poster campaigns, and then everybody is focused on the posters as they go up. One thing that I, I really liked about British politics were, was the daily press conference, that, it, that in, in both campaigns, on, bo on all sides, actually, the liberals as well, although people paid less attention to them, people would get up every morning and they'd answer questions. And it would be not just Tony or not just Gordon, but other people in the party, and the same thing with the conservatives. I wish we had more of that here. Um, finally, you've teamed up with, and you mentioned him earlier, the Republican strategist Mike Murphy, to establish the Center for the Political Future 
in which you aim to reduce polarization and promote, quote, civil fact-based dialogue, unquote. How do you go about doing that, and how long do you see this kind of division continuing? Uh, I don't have any illusion that we're going to solve the problem on our own. What we want to do is model and advance the kind of dialogue where we respect each other and we respect the truth. Uh, we used to have fiercely contested races in this country uh, in which people, you know, you know, sometimes people would throw a spitball, sometimes people would throw some mud, but there, was, there were guardrails and there was a general sense of what you had to observe. So we're going to try to do this through conferences, by bringing the academy into the public square through publicly accessible, uh, readable, comprehensible scholarship that, you know, say, on, on where you could examine what is the gender gap in five pages, because we have a, a professor here who's done some great research which demonstrates that the gender gap is actually largely driven by color. We'll see whether that still holds in this election. Uh, and we're going to do weekly programming. I mean, we have brought in the run-up to this people as diverse as David Axelrod and, and Anthony Scaramucci to campus. Uh, the discussions have been interesting, respectful. Students have been there. They've been fun, too. Uh, we've had panels on which, uh, you know, when we did Trump's first 100 days, we had Hillary Clinton's chief strategist, Joel Benenson, was there. And on the same panel, we had uh, Joel Pollack, the editor of Breitbart. Uh, and... The we try to create an atmosphere in which the discussion is respectful. Uh, what happened at Harvard after the, the, the in, in their post, we had a post-election uh, conference too in 2016, and it was respectful. What happened at Harvard at their post-election conference was that everybody screamed at each other. So we're, we're trying to move away from that. Reed Galen has helped run presidential campaigns for George W. Bush and John McCain, has worked in the White House and served as deputy campaign manager for Arnold Schwarzenegger's successful campaign to be re-elected governor of California in 2006. He's now chief strategist of the Serve America movement, a new political movement aiming to break and end the dominance of the two established parties. Reed, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And now, since we're in California, can I begin by asking, what was it like to work for Arnold? And as a non-politician seeking election to public office, do mm -hmm. you see any parallels with the current president? You know, working for Governor Schwarzenegger was one of the certainly most unique experiences I had. I also think it was, you know, I would say of all the people I've worked for at high levels, I would say he was, you know, the most approachable of them. He was someone who you could actually sit down and have a conversation with, someone who had, you know, lived at the heights of Hollywood, but also could go to Fresno and talk to farmers about their issues with agriculture. So I think it was it was a fascinating thing to see someone be able to scale the heights of one industry and go into, you know, the, the prime governorship in the United States. As a veteran of several campaigns mm -hmm. in this state, what would you say is so distinctive about politics in California and indeed about California life? Sure. Well, you know, there are about 40 million people in California, so it makes up about 13 percent of the United States population writ large, it has everything. It has the beaches, it has the mountains, it has the desert, it has jungles, it has forests, and it has so many distinct regions and so many distinct people. 
the people that live in San Diego County compared to the people that live in Sacramento, they might as well live on Mars and the moon compared to one another. It's just such a big state and it's so varied in its politics. You know, in the north, you get the water and in the south, you use the water. Los Angeles, Orange County, where we are tonight, these places would be deserts without the water that comes out of the Sierra Mountains, you know, a thousand miles from here. So I think it's just a fascinating place. And you've seen that California, you know, for a very long time was a Republican state. George H.W. Bush uh, in 1988 was the last Republican presidential candidate to win here. Bill Clinton broke that streak in 1992 and hasn't been broken since. And so I think you've seen that it has been a state that is progressive, not only in its politics, but certainly in the way that it has governed. That's not to say that it has always been governed well or acts the way that a government this size should. But given the size and the diversity of the people and its politics, I think, you know, it's the sixth largest economy in the world and there's a reason for it. You mentioned the 1988 changeover. What do Republicans have to do to compete again in California? Or is the party past the point of no return here? First, they'd have to change their names. So there are, in California, if you are not affiliated with either party or a political party, regardless, you're called a no party preference voter, NPP. And just this year, no party preference voters overtook registration of the Republicans for the first time in history. So Republicans are actually the third largest voting bloc in the state now. And I think that that's only going to continue. No party preference voters, independent voters who want to make it easier, have grown, I think, eight times as fast as even Democratic voters have in this state over the last 10 or 20 years. So I think for Republicans, it is a very hard time as they have shrunk in numbers, they have crystallized in their hardcore beliefs, especially when it comes to taxes and immigration. And I think given especially the size of the Latino population here, I think it's just very difficult for them to grow. I mean, one unusual feature here is that you have statewide referendums or ballot measures Mm -hmm. on specific policy issues. Can you explain how they work? And are there any interesting ones on the ballot this November? Sure. So the initiative and referenda process started back in the early 20th century with Governor Hiram Johnson, who aimed to take away the power that the robber barons, as they were, they literally were railroad barons, had over the state legislature. So he put this people's referendum in place in order to circumvent what the legislature had done vis-a-vis these, you know, these were the special interests of all special interests at the time. What you've seen now is it has metastasized into major special interests, very well special interests, basically fighting with each other every two years. And so, for example, there's a measure on the ballot this year that would determine whether or not localities could impose rent control on apartments, any rental property. Obviously, this is something that is near and dear to the hearts of many Democrats, or at least many Democratic leaders, because housing prices in this state are out of control in most of your urban or suburban areas. But I believe that the opponents of the rent control measure have put something like $66 million into defeating it this fall. I think Prop 12, there are 12 ballot measures on the on the ballot this fall. So think about a, size, a state the size of California, then you have 12 ballot measures, all of which the, the way that you read these things, it might as well be Greek. It doesn't make sense to any normal human being how they're read. Uh, so not only are they confusing, but they also have fairly arcane topics. Prop 12, I believe, says that every animal that's going to be consumed, pigs, you know, cows, whatever. Don't tell me they have to have the written permission of the animals. I don't think they're not quite that far, but they're going to designate some amount of space that these animals must have to move around. I'm not, I don't, you know, doesn't matter to me one way or the other particularly, but those are the kinds of things that you get 
because it's a relatively speaking low threshold in a state of 40 million people, I think you need something like 750,000 signatures on petitions to get something on the ballot. So it has become an industry, not even a cottage industry, a billion dollar industry in and of itself. You've worked for some of the most successful Republican politicians of the last 20 years. What ultimately pushed you away from the party and what would they have to do or to make happen to want that you would rejoin? So I grew up in Republican politics. You know, I grew up on going to Capitol Hill with my father, who was also in Republican politics for a very long time. And I was never a very good Republican. I would always say I was probably a, what we would call a rhino, a Republican in name only. Certainly not a Democrat, but certainly never as conservative as a lot of the people I worked with. And I think that, you know, following President Trump's nomination in 2016, I was already evolving away from the party. I'd spent 10 years here in California. And, you know, being that far away from the political system, it makes it a lot easier to to really have a, a lot more open and free thought about how things work. And for me, you know, if what the Republican Party had become was to nominate someone that espoused the things that President Trump says in the way that President Trump acts, that just wasn't going to be for me. As far as going back to them, I, I think for me, that's literally a bridge too far at this point. Cornelius Ryan had it right. Turning to the Serve America movement, which you're now helping to run. Sure. Third parties and independents are not new in American politics, although they've had a hard time uh, breaking through. Why is yours different and how do you cut through the self-fulfilling prophecy that there's no point voting for a third party because it will never win? Sure. And so we call that the wasted vote problem, and that is a big one. So just first, the, the Serve America movement was started in the wake of, of the 2016 campaign uh, by a bunch of Republicans, independents, and Democrats who said that regardless of whether or not you voted for President Trump or Hillary Clinton, a political system that would produce these two exponents as the choice of leadership had clearly you know, run its course as far as how it operated efficiently or correctly. And so it took us about a year to figure out what we wanted to be. We went out and talked to people. We did some field work. We did some research, the, kind of, the, the kinds of things you do. And what we found is that starting a new political party is really, I don't even want to say it's, it's not easy and it's not fast, but the most efficient electoral way to start putting candidates, new candidates in front of people, because running an independent campaign is fine, but each one of those things under our electoral rules is, an, is a new thing. Every time you run an independent campaign, those people have to go do all that work. A political party has a lot more rights and benefits at the state level, and that's where all politics occurs in the United States, is at the state level. And so that's why we decided to go that way. As far as the wasted vote is concerned, you know, we have to start looking for places where, you know, it might be in a place like California, where the Republican Party is dying on the vine. If the two major parties become the Democrats and Sam in California, because there are a lot of Republicans who feel left out and a lot of Democrats who believe maybe the parties move too far to the left and we give them a home, that's fine. In Texas, if the Democrats have died on the vine and Sam can step into place and, and provide a role for those people who don't feel like they have a political home, those are the things we'll do. But we understand that this is not going to be an easy process. This is not going to get solved in the next two years, the next four years, or even the next 10 years. And so this is a, a slow deliberate process by which we will have new state parties. Uh, I think we'll have three by the end of this year and a number by the end of next year. And so we will be running candidates for various offices around the country come November 2020. How far is your effort to create a third party a response to Donald Trump's election? Or was this idea already brewing before he came on the scene? 
I think like so many things vis-a-vis President Trump, it was something that I think a lot of people already felt. If you go back and you look at a lot of research, whether or not that's Gallup or Pew, there's been a growing desire for an independent voice or or more independence in the electorate. But I think that President Trump was probably very much a catalyst in that effort. It said, okay, now there is a time and an opening where the Republicans, for so many people— I don't even know if they've moved to the right. I don't know what direction they've moved in, but they weren't what traditional Republicans might want to see. I think Democrats, you see at least their leadership is moving further and further to the left. So we think that this is a time now where you know people are willing to listen to this. One of the aims of the Serve America movement is to unify Americans on the issues the two dominant parties are getting wrong. Which issues do you think are getting the most wrong? Well, I think it's it, it might even be worse than getting it wrong. I don't remember who said the opposite of love is indifference. And both major parties are indifferent, at least in action, to Social Security or what we call entitlements with immigration, right? We, we came very close in this country twice when Senator Rubio had the Gang of Seven or President Bush, Senator McCain and Senator Kenny back in 2007 became very close to getting immigration reform done, whether or not that's our national debt and deficit. You know, our health care system is still a shambles and too expensive for too many families. And these are things that our political system doesn't even address, let alone get wrong. I mean, the principles you outline, I mm-hmm. mean, like fiscal responsibility, security and sustainable growth are hard for anyone to actually disagree with. But all politicians know that it's when you come out with specific policies mm-hmm. that you start to upset people. Sure. Uh, which party's voters are you finding easier to engage? Are you fishing mostly in red waters or blue waters? Uh, I would say that initially the red waters were more fruitful fishing grounds, I would say. But I think what we've seen as the campaign here is coming to a close this fall and as we're starting to see the presidential aspirants for the Democratic Party start to rev up their campaigns, I think we're starting to see that some Democrats are unhappy with the direction. You can be a Democrat and say that I believe in more, you know, larger benefits for people out of work or more centralized health care and those things and say, I'm not a socialist. Socialism is is I don't want to say antithetical to most American politics, but I think for most Americans, the even the concept of it, even if they don't understand the, the specific tenets, is still not something they want to do. So I think we're starting to see that the as we've moved forward in these last 18 to 24 months, the fishing grounds have become more fertile on both sides. Is it too early to expect that Sam may have a presidential candidate for 2020? I would say so. You know, we have discussed that at length internally. And I think that we are, you know, we, we again, we are not going to be victims of short termism. You know, we, we have a 50 state strategy where eventually we want to have a Sam official qualified ballot, you know, line in all these places where we can run candidates. And if a presidential aspirant in 2020 is a part of that, I think we'll see. But I don't know that we've made that decision yet. Whether or not it's under your banner, do you see a well-known politician from either side or even a bipartisan ticket making a serious bid? I think that there will be probably at least one unity ticket a Republican and Democrat, choose your office, president, vice president. And I believe there'll be probably at least one to two probably wealthy individuals who give it a shot. Whether or not they go the distance, I think remains to be seen. As you know, running for president of the United States is as unique a political act as there is on the planet Earth. And it is a lot easier to say than do. It is a it is a 50-state operation. It is hundreds of millions of dollars 
tens of thousands of people that you've got to organize. And ultimately, you have to have a message that resonates. And with all the noise going on right now, that's going to take a really unique set of circumstances. I think it's as possible now as it's maybe ever been, maybe since Ross Perot in 1992. So I think we'll see somebody. I think the question is, how much of what the Democrats do vis-a-vis their nominating process has an impact on those independents? Finally, sort of looking further ahead when we get to the year, say, 2030, Mm -hmm. are you still seeing the two principal parties being dominant or should we be looking that Sam may be starting to come to some form of fruition or is it even longer than that? I think that by 2030, you will see the... the tenets of the American political system as far as how we elect people will remain the same. I think that voters will have and will accept and will expect more and better options from their political system. Reed, thank you very much indeed for joining me and good luck in your endeavors as you get this project moving. Thanks for having me.